The electric chair. What is it? Hey, here we are. Welcome, one and all, to another edition of The Electric Chair. This is episode 30. Wow, kind of like a milestone. You know, um, I'm not sure why it's a milestone other than, you know, it, it falls on an even 10. You know, it's episode 30. So hooray, 30 episodes. But uh, no, it is really cool that we've come this far and um, there is no end in sight. Um, in fact, I have so many good things lined up for you all to hear that uh, it, it's just fantastic. I'm, I'm so excited. My name is Midnight Corey. I am your host and I bring you horror goodness each and every week. And this week is, of course, no exception. Um, and just so many great things. So uh, let's see. You can hear me on uh, Stitcher, Smart Radio, of course. If you're listening to me on Stitcher right now, thank you. Thank you. That means that you are technologically uh, advanced and that you're keeping up with the times because uh, you're probably listening on your phone or your tablet. But now Stitcher is doing, you know, they're spreading out. Um, so they're no longer, you know, just an app, you know, just something mobile because, uh, there is, now I can like embed a Stitcher player on different places around the web. If I, you know, have a, a website where I want a Stitcher player, uh, I can do that. So it's really cool. They're, they're expanding constantly. And uh, I really appreciate that I'm part of that. Uh, great, great community, a huge community of quality podcasts. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Stitcher's awesome. Uh, of course, I always talk about the Horror Podcasting Alliance, which you got to go check them out. Horrorpodcastingalliance.blogspot.com. Several fantastic podcasts on there. A great, great group of people. Truly, I, I really uh, enjoy each and every one of them. So check them out. And of course, the wonderful, awesome, incredible, great as many you know positive uh, adjectives as I can use. Uh, Spookshow.tv. Uh, wonderful things happening there. In fact, um, I was just uh, speaking with them this week, and the audio show is going to be part of Spookshow.tv as well. So it's not only 2D, but you also get 0D. I mean, whatever you call audio. <laughs> you know, audio is technically 0D, right? I mean, there's no you know, width or height or depth or length or anything. You know, there's no dimension to audio, is there? So... This is the electric chair zero D, I guess. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm just honored to be part of that. So uh, I'm in the process of uh, putting that all through to them, and uh, it's just it's wonderful. I, I'm just really involved right now with I think a really really great uh, group of people um, who are you know have integrity and are just in it for for the love of what they're doing. So that's the right group of people to be involved in. Because I'll tell you what. I've been involved with some shady people in the past. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's where the electric chair started in shadiness. Being involved in this thing that, oh, man, is just too weird to put words to, man. But, uh, yeah, that's all in the past. And who cares? I'm having fun. So let's get into the fun here. Um, of course, if you want to call the voicemail line and leave me some uh, feedback on the show, things I talk about that you either agree with or disagree with or you don't even care, just call me anyhow. Yeah, just say anything. 206-337-5096, and uh, you'll reach me. Um, so, yeah, that's that. Um, this week, a lot of cool things happened. First of all, 
Let me tell you about my friend, uh, Sean Gabarin. Now, Sean, I spoke with him in person. I actually met the man at uh, the uh, drive-in Super Monsterama back in September. Um, if you remember, he actually he, he appeared on the show. Uh, I did a little clip with him, and uh, we had a lot of fun. Um, he, of course, is an extremely talented writer. Um, he, he's involved in the production of comics um, and uh, Action Lab Comics. Uh, go to actionlabcomics.com. Uh, fantastic site. That is where Sean can be found. So much of his work. And uh, so he was talking. He actually he uh, messaged me or emailed me the other day, whatever. I think he emailed me. And he's like, Corey, I loved your last episode. And he was talking about some of the music on there. And he's just a really great guy like that. And uh, so he's like, by the way, I would love to send you uh, one of my comics. I think you'd really enjoy it. I, I put it out last Halloween. And, uh, you know, I I'd like for you to take a read. And uh, he sent me this comic. It's called Snowed In. Um, it was released in October of 2011. And it's a black and white one-shot comic that Action Lab put out. And uh, Sean, man, thank you. If you're listening right now, thank you, dude, for that. That was, that was just so cool for you to reach out, man, because I love this. Now, I, I just mentioned it to you quickly. I'm like, dude, I love the comic. Thanks. It was great. But uh, I didn't tell you why. But let me tell you why, man. This was so, uh, it was so much horror to me. It's a very claustrophobic thing, you know, and, and there's just something about being up in a cabin up in the woods. You're snowed in. This weird guy appeared. Well, it's not a weird guy. He's actually, um, well, you, you got to read the comic. I'm not going to spoil anything about it. Um, but there's a lot of crazy things going on. And, man, you don't spell things out for anybody. You leave, you leave the whole premise of the thing. You, you leave it up to our imagination. You leave us guessing, you know, is this for real happening or is this just like a psychological thing going on for, you know between all the people so sean this was some brilliant writing on your part man and uh, this is definitely worth a read um i believe now sean please correct me if i'm wrong but i believe you can get right onto actionlabcomics.com and purchase this right now and it's like four bucks like 3.99 which is a steal for this because you're gonna love it it's a 40 page black and white comic uh, the artwork is absolutely beautiful um, that was done by uh, Lick, uh, Rick yeah, Lick <sighs> Rick Lundin <laughs> sorry to call you Lick Rick Lundin <laughs> and uh, man it, it is very beautiful artwork and again a fantastic story woven by mr. Sean Gabrin so uh, dude Thank you again, and I encourage everyone to uh, go check out more of what is uh, available there at Action Lab. But uh, I'm really excited. So that was very cool. Let me tell you about something else really cool. Uh, I'm going to play you another song this week. Now, this is an original song by a man who goes by the name of King Uke. He is a, a master of the ukulele, and uh, I've been... Uh, I've been talking with him actually for a long time. He's listened to the show, and uh, he, he's really, really cool. And he messaged me actually on Google Plus. You know, I'm hanging out a lot more on Google Plus now and doing more things through there because Facebook is just doing some shady stuff. You know, again, the shady thing, man. They're, Facebook's getting weird. You know, they've been getting progressively weirder and shadier as time has gone on here in the past like couple years. And so, you know, Google Plus is really, really great. So uh, he messaged me and uh, he had put up this new clip on YouTube and he has a wealth of uh, clips up on YouTube. Um, but uh, it was a progressive metal song that he performed himself on uh, ukulele, uh, you know, as well as a lot of other instruments. 
But, uh, you know, his whole thing, he has this king caster that he built himself. This is basically, you know, you picture a Fender Stratocaster uh, guitar, an electric guitar. Shrink it down to ukulele size, although you keep the beauty and sort of, uh, you know, the proportions, you know, the, the way that the body style is, the way that the, the head and uh, the neck and everything. I mean, it looks like a, a, a midget, you know, strat. <laughs> it's a thing of beauty. And he has a lot of videos on this. So, again, I encourage you. I'm going to put up links on the show notes. But uh, you, you need to go watch this. So it's, King Yuke messages me. He uh, put together a prog metal song uh, called Hellogram. And a hellogram is a message from hell. So you listen to this, and it's a message from hell. And I just love it. Um, so uh, it, it was a really a lot of fun. But the whole reason he did a prog metal song was because he was the one who turned me on to Hologram Earth. And Hologram Earth, of course, is the amazing ungodly band uh, out of uh, the Netherlands that I featured last week on the show and really talked up a lot, and I'm still talking up a lot. Um, of course, um, you know, go check them out. If you haven't checked out Hologram Earth, it's a, it, it, wow. I can't say enough about it. But anyhow, thank you to King Yuke for turning me on to Hologram Earth. Thank you to King Yuke for <laughs> writing and recording <laughs> this great prog metal song called Hellogram and doing it on the ukulele. I love the ukulele. I especially love the Kingcaster. And uh, I, I do play the ukulele myself um, somewhat. You know, I, I have one. I got one here this past spring. And uh, I've been messing with it. And adds a very interesting element to uh, the songwriting, especially, you know, you put it in with uh, a lot of different kinds of instruments and you use it in a way that's not necessarily the traditional way to use a ukulele. And King Yuke, you are no stranger to that. Uh, so it's really awesome. So. Anyhow, before we get on to the next segment, the way I'm going to segue into that ne next segment is by playing Hellogram. And that, that uh, is actually with the permission of my friend King Yuke. So cheers to you, sir, for uh, being so awesome. So awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, so that's King Yuke. And, of course, I'm going to have a lot of links up on uh, the show notes to where you can uh, watch him on YouTube. You can friend him on Google+. And uh, go to his blog. He has an awesome blog. An awesome blog, so uh, you're going to want to check that out. But, uh, man, man, so much goodness here. So, um, also, uh, it, hey, let's talk about uh, Tales from the Electric Chair. I'm going to do another reading this week. And, actually, this is going to be part one of six. So, starting now and then for the next, uh, you know, five weeks after this, six parts altogether, I'm going to be reading Herbert West, Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft. Now, this is a very interesting story in a lot of regards. Uh, a lot of people, you know, he, he basically wrote this story in six parts because it was serialized in uh, this, um, you know, magazine that he was writing for back in the day. And he was doing it for money. And they always wanted a cliffhanger at the end. They wanted it to, you know, each part to fit nicely by itself, but to leave the readers, of course, wanting more. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, Mr. Lovecraft ever looked at this as a great work of his at all. And his uh, really devoted fans uh, consider this, I guess, to be, you know, one of his weakest works. Um, but uh, I really enjoy it. And uh, I don't know if it's because I saw the movies before I ever read this story. You know, I saw Reanimator and uh, Bride of Reanimator and Beyond Reanimator. And I've talked about those before, I, I think, on was it the Midnight Podcast? I did I did a series of shows about those. But I enjoy all the movies. But uh, going back to the original Lovecraft tale adds a whole new dimension to things. It is 
very different, especially in his depiction of Herbert West himself. You know, we're, we're all used to the Jeffrey Combs Herbert West. But uh, his, his description of Herbert West in uh, the original tale is much different. Um, so it's just really cool to go back and look at where this all came from. And like I said, I consider this to be a good story. I enjoy it. Yeah, it is really different from most of the really great classic Lovecraft stuff. But uh, it is definitely Lovecraft and, you know, the way he uses language, the way he uses words and, and weaves the story. But, uh, yeah, it is kind of an anomaly for him because this was uh, basically, you know, writing strictly for cash, you know, strictly to get by. Um, so, yeah, yeah, a weird tale. But, uh, again, I love it. So it is in six parts. That's the way it was serialized. And each week I'm going to read one part from here until it's going to take us, what, up to about, you know, just before Christmas or something like that. But, uh, yeah. And it's interesting to see how these have influenced the movies because, as a matter of fact, um, this entire tale and, and all the six parts um, have influenced different things in all three movies in different ways. And uh, if you've seen those and you know those movies, you'll be able to, to identify that, I think, as well. But uh, you'll also be able to sort of marvel at the differences and how they, the movie makers, the filmmakers themselves, Stuart Gordon and, and everyone, really um, took it and made it something of their own at the same time and, and did some really wonderful things with it. But it's not like the original. It's actually very different. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be reading that. And uh, have a lot of fun. Have a lot of fun. So I uh, hope you'll enjoy it as well. Um, let's see. Let's see. Oh, well, I continued watching things in the Ultimate Zombie Feast, uh, this uh, two-disc DVD set out of the UK. And I'm finding that almost all of these are available online to watch for free, which uh, is interesting um, that, you know, I, I, I bought the DVDs, but I could have actually gone out and seen them all for free. But this is a great way to have them all in one place, and I wouldn't have found out about them otherwise. And so, you know, this is really great. The next one I uh, watched this week, um, I'm still on the first disc. This is, I think, the fourth one at this point, and it's called Bitten. It's from 2008. Um, it's out of the UK, directed by Duncan Lang, and it's six minutes long. Very quick watch. And I did find this online. If you would like to watch it, it is up on Vimeo, and that link will be on the show notes at electrichairshow.com. So uh, definitely check this out. This one is great. This one is really, really cool. I posted to uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and Google+, um, actually this morning. No, it won't be this morning as, you, as you're listening to this, but... Uh, the morning I'm recording this, uh, I, you know, I, I, I posted, you know, if you really want to get freaked out this morning, here you go. Watch this. And I posted up a link. And man, man, it shows the progression. You know, it just starts with this this woman who's been bitten by a zombie. And she is rushed home, locked the door, and she's progressing in her sort of transformation into a zombie. And it is so freaky. Now, I'm using zombie, of course, very loosely here, of course, as we've learned through the years. Um, you know, everyone has their own interpretation of what a zombie is. And um, at the end, as you see the transformation, what she becomes, I think the closest thing I can um, sort of uh, relate this sort of zombie to would be if you've seen Doghouse. Um, you know, she's a does a, a transformation and that she gets kind of the claws and gets very evil looking and shrieking and stuff like that. And that's what we saw in Doghouse. So, uh, but it is cool nonetheless. Don't get me wrong. It is awesome. It is awesome. So definitely go and watch Bitten. 
Uh, fine, fine. Again, they do things with low budgets. You know, if you look at the description of this movie, you know, I can't believe what people are doing nowadays for next to nothing. And uh, man, I'm just so lucky that I watched this. And I hope that you will uh, treat yourself to six minutes of getting freaked out here. It's a great film. So Bitten, 2008. Man, man, batting a thousand. Yet again, like I say, in this DVD set of The Ultimate Zombie Feast, this is, this is a fantastic collection so far. So thank you to the makers of that. Now, now the real excitement of the episode happens. Not that I haven't already had a lot of excitement already, a lot of great things, but my interview this week is with a filmmaker, another filmmaker out of Ireland. What is it about Ireland, you know, that is really producing some fantastic talent? Well, we talk about that. We talk about that. We get into it. But uh, I am honored to have on the show Mr. Randall Plunkett. Randall is, uh, again, I'm going to get into this in the interview, but uh, he is of some amazing Irish lineage. And uh, if you go back and you look at uh, his family, man, it's amazing stuff. And uh, I, uh, I'm just humbled and honored that uh, I'm speaking with him. He made a fantastic short film called Out There. And uh, he was so kind as to uh, give it to me uh, to screen and um, just, you know, he put it out there and uh, I loved it. It's a fantastic film. I mean, this this thing blew me away. It's making the festival circuit right now. And so we really talk about a lot of things. Randall is so awesome. He is so fun to talk to, so knowledgeable and so passionate about what he does. And I'll tell you what, this is one of the most fun interviews that I've ever done. I just, uh, man, we could have go on like we did this in the middle of the afternoon. Of course he's in, uh, uh, Ireland. So, um, he's about five hours ahead of me. So in order for him to do this interview in the evening, I had to do this, this, uh, I had to do this interview in the afternoon. So, uh, I could have gone on well, through the afternoon into the evening into the wee hours of the night talking with Randall because literally before we recorded and then again a good bit of time after we recorded we talked just about all kinds of things and uh, man I think you're really going to enjoy this interview it was fantastic he is so talented and uh, there are some great things on the horizon for Mr. Plunkett so man we're going to get to that right now but as I promised before we speak with Randall Plunkett we're going to hear King Uke performing Hellagram.
I'm really honored right now to be speaking with a fantastic independent filmmaker, uh, Mr. Randall Plunkett. Randall, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Firstly, it's an honor to be on your show. Oh, we love it out here in Ireland. Oh, you are so kind. That's a, a huge honor. And, uh, you know, we were talking before the show just about uh, there is quite a, a nice following um, in Ireland, uh, the UK uh, of the show. And it's it, it just makes me feel really good. And it's a, it's a huge honor. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you for doing it. You keep us informed of what's going on all over the place. Oh, I do. I do. And it's it's just you know, a lot of fun. There's Wikipedia and then there's yourself. <laughs> oh, well, I wouldn't go that far. But uh, no, that's uh, it, it's a huge honor for me. Uh, to be speaking with you, um, not only because you're a fantastic filmmaker, but uh, you're coming to us from Ireland, and uh, you have quite the lineage, uh, quite the uh, genealogy. Now, um, uh, I could be calling you, you know, Lord Dunsany, and um, well, you, could, you could call me that, but let's call me Randall. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but uh, no, talk a little bit about your family and your lineage. I mean, you you are part of, I think, one of the uh, one of the oldest and uh, most respected families in, in Ireland? Well, we are now the oldest family. Wow. Uh, we're the oldest Norman family. In fact, we're the last of the Mohicans, actually. I think one of the last uh, members of the Normans died recently, and they've, their family line has come to, a, to an end. So we are the oldest family um, associated with one place. And uh, we can trace our family back as, even as far back as the Vikings. So, I mean, that's pretty old. Um, but we're all pretty simple people here, you know, we're all trying to get by, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we have a big castle out here and it's freezing and good, but it's a great place to, to think of, of horror stories. So, oh yeah, it's yeah, very inspirational seeing that kind of stuff and having the kind of history, you know, yeah. a lot of fights, a lot of, a lot of betrayal, you know, yeah. few romances. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I could just imagine. I mean, uh, we were talking before the show about uh, your latest uh, short that uh, we're going to be talking about here called Out There. And um, this was an amazing film, but you shot this all on your estate, which was really interesting for me to hear because that was, you know, one of the long list of things that I wanted to talk about that were fantastic about this short. So um, let's just get into it um, out there. Um, tell everyone kind of uh, what this was about and maybe how this came about. Well, it was, uh, I wrote two films, actually. Uh, my brother and I kind of, we spitball ideas every so often. And uh, my brother is equally as much of a horror fan as I am. And uh, we have our big beef with, with uh, things nowadays is that things have too much complication. We want raw, raw horror. We want zombies. We got mon monsters. We want gruesome vampires. And we want to bring it back to the low budget because low budget for us is, is what we like to watch. And uh, high quality, but low budget, because uh, not too much CGI, not too much of that, you know, the old fashioned blowing up heads, all that kind of stuff. And uh, well, out there was sort of the second one. The first one was Walt, which was uh, we kind of tried to uh, achieve a kind of it was a fairy tale, so to speak. But uh, it's about an American kind of you know, fishing out in the Irish countryside He's a bit of an outcast. He's blind. And, uh, you know, he befriends a young boy and it starts as a sort of coming of age film. And just about the point where everybody in the audience is thinking, oh, isn't this sweet? Uh, the guy eats the kid. <laughs> wow. Turns out to be a cannibal and everybody's thinking, oh, he's a pedo, he's a pedo. Nope. Puts him in a cage, has him for lunch. And, you know, we, we like that kind of sense of humor, you know, the tongue in cheek kind of thing. Wow. But uh, so we started with that one uh, and we did that last year. 
And this year we said, nope, time for, time for Out There, which was the other script I wrote, which is essentially a zombie film. But it's not, you see, one of the things I wanted to do with Out There, I didn't want to just make a straight up zombie film because I thought that would be a little bit too simple. And I, it, it was based, every story I make um, is based on a little piece of my life. And I had just uh, inherited my estate and my responsibility. And a lot of your viewers probably won't know too much about this. But when you have a, come from a background like mine, you have to give quite a lot. It's, it's a lot of privilege, but it's also a lot of, um, it's a lot to carry. You know, we have to, we over here have been, you know, groomed since birth to kind of take this over. Integrity is extremely important for me and my family. And that's why we've lasted almost a thousand years. Uh, so with that responsibility, I mean, I was still kind of like, you know, just getting out of college and things like that. I wanted to party. I wanted to, to do all these wild things that normal people can do. But uh, always in the back of my mind, I knew that I would have to come back. I would have to face my responsibility. And that's what out there was. I mean, it was a, a metaphor for me dodging my responsibility, which is the, uh, the story of our main character played by Connor Marin, uh, Rob. And his relationship with his uh, girlfriend, Jane, uh, played by Emma Liza Regan. And uh, so basically, it was a metaphor for the kind of me running away from my responsibilities, or at least wanting to run away from my responsibilities, and throw a few zombies in there, and you have a horror movie. Man, and you tell a great story. And, and just now hearing where this has come from, it's kind of a little piece of your life. Um, it, this is really, really fascinating. Um, I just love how you wove the story together. Um, using uh, so many different techniques, and um, wow, wow, the uh, you know every aspect I think of this was amazing, and really I'm I'm having a hard time finding anything negative about this. I've I've watched this now like That's four or five times, kind of <laughs> and I'm like, there's got to be something. There's got to be a little you know a CGI that you know maybe wasn't quite so good. You know maybe there was a little camera bump here and and everything. Everything was absolutely amazing and uh, just, uh, wow. Talking about low budget, uh, it's, it just blows my mind that uh, you can yeah, pull something I mean, off the, like this. The thing is for us, um, we, it's very difficult for me to make films because, one, I take a lot of time over them. You know? I mean, I spend a lot of time developing production and developing scripts you know, because, I mean, I rewrote that three or four times. And then once I got the cast, I completely ripped it to pieces with the <laughs> cast because we had lots of dialogue and we had lots of little story. And myself, Connor uh, and Emma, we looked at that and we said, there's too much talking in this movie. And we just ripped all the dialogue out oh, wow. because, I mean, the cool thing about it is, I mean, there is too much talking a lot of the time in films, particularly mm -hmm. like short films. A lot of people just try and cram things with lots of dialogue and there's no... The audience isn't stupid. The audience can see uh, things going on. They, they can read between the lines. Mm. So just being sort of spoon-fed information is really kind of a bit boring for us, really. Mm. So we wanted to try and do something very minimalistic, which is, again, not very common right. in the genre. Normally, there's lots of people screaming and running around. Where We wanted to build an atmosphere and to, and to try and do it in as few words as possible. Oh, yeah. I remember in, uh, in one of my uh, film classes in college, uh, the professor told us that uh, the mark of a great movie is uh, when you can uh, go out uh, to the kitchen, leave the room, but leave the movie running, and you are unable to tell anymore what's going on in the film. If you can walk out of the, the, out of the room and listen to it and still know exactly what's going on, 
in the film, then it's probably not as effective as it could be. Um, and uh, you, you just have to just weave all of the elements together. I mean, uh, you, you tell a great, great story, um, again, without dialogue. And that's, that's amazing that you did that, that you took that step to eliminate a, a ton of dialogue and really just kind of take a chance to uh, well, we tell a story visually. Because it was an experiment for us, really, because, I mean, it was a piece of a bigger story. See, every short film I do always is with the option of development, you know? Yeah. And um, I just, I've never been one of those guys who can just tell a short story. I, I like to tell pieces of a story to get people interested, you know? Mm. And Out There, for me, was somewhat of an experiment as well, because, I mean, being an independent filmmaker means you can really explore stuff, you know? You can really try different things, because that's how great films are made, you know? It's, it's right. through trial and error. And I knew it was going to be a little controversial doing some of the things that I did in the film. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people might not like what I tried. But for me, it was an experiment. I wanted to tell a story told almost completely visually and with minimal dialogue and mostly just led by music. Mm -hmm. And we had a really, really talented um, composer, Darius McGann, who is pretty much... Uh, he's, for me, one of the best composers around at the moment. He's a really young guy. And he's just... he's. You know, he's close to genius. He's fantastic. I, I love working with him because he's even there involved at the script level. Wow. Uh, not many composers do that. I mean, we're talking in the feature. I mean, we're already spitballing ideas. I mean, he's the one giving me ideas. Hmm. And you, a director never gets that from a composer, or very rarely. And for me, I have that kind of relationship with him. And he already thinks about musical scores and tones and sounds before the film's even shot. So for me, it was the first time where the composer had as much creativity as the cinematographer. Wow, wow. And it and came together. Storytelling. It came together brilliantly. I mean, the, the score was perfect. Absolutely perfect. It, I think it did exactly what it needed to do. It heightened you know, your, your sense of dread, um, and it really gave the atmosphere and just, just perfectly fitting. And now, you know, I'm not surprised that he was involved, like you said, from the script level, so he knows exactly where things are going. He was kind of uh, helping develop the vision for the whole thing. So He is, absolutely. Yeah. As much as the actors, because to be honest, I'm not uh, much of a script writer, really. I'm, I don't feel myself as much of a writer. I, I, I'm a producer. I produce things, you know, and I can write, but... I'm not as confident with my writing as I would be with, with my, you know, getting stuff done <laughs> uh, attitude. But the, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, with, it's, for me, when I write a script, I mean, I present it to the actors with the intention of ripping it to pieces and re redoing the whole thing. And that's what happened, except it happened on so many different stages. It happened from the cinematographer, it happened to, and perhaps not every filmmaker does that, but I feel comfortable uh, allowing people to, to, to work on, on the project. And we developed whole backstories around the characters. And, you know, it's really nice to work like that. If you have any directors listening, I mean, it's, it's definitely worth trying because it's, it's, for me, it's revolutionized the way I do things. Yeah, and it's very good of you that you can uh, kind of open up your work like that. And uh, because, uh, you know, I'm sure it's kind of difficult on a certain level because, of course, this is kind of your baby, you know. This is the thing that you came up with and you, you produced. You put a lot of work into and, you know, you're basically, like you said, ripping it to shreds, letting people look at it, make suggestions, make changes, you know, I don't know, if even, you know, be critical at times. And that's got to be tough. It's, I'll tell you, the thing is for me, because uh, what interests me really is, is the, the undertones, 
That's what's really important to me. Like mm. the emotions behind things, you know, the meanings behind things. Those things don't change so much. You know, I mean, like I told you, the basic idea of where the story came from. I mean, that doesn't change with dialogue changes. That doesn't change with using different tones. I mean, those things stay true all the way through. Mm. But how we deal with the subject matter is what really changes. And that's what makes it so much more interesting for me, because it's like when you raise a child, you don't know how that child's going to come. You have an idea how you think he's going to develop or how she's going to develop. But it's, it's, it's your parents or, or your, your, your peers that shape you as a person. And I don't think cinema is any different. You know, it's, it's not something that one person controls. It has so many different levels from, from the sound to the, to the music. I mean, you have so much that goes into a piece of cinema to even to make the most basic five minute film. It's, it's, it's a melting pot of ideas. Really good cinema is always a melting pot of ideas, hmm. or at least in my opinion, it is. Yeah, wow, what a great philosophy! That's uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, the actors, the actors definitely enjoy it because uh, hmm. you know a lot of directors don't like to to, to release control, but uh, you know the actors like it and they they enjoy working on it. I think so. Uh, certainly, Connor and Emma were, were willing to work with me again. So, you know. fantastic, fantastic, and I, I I would think that working that way would really I think bring out the best. Everyone would uh, want to put in more effort, want to put in more of themselves into their work, and I think go above and beyond because they know, hey, you know, I, a little piece of me is going into this film. You know, I had I have a little bit of say into how things are developing, and uh, so I, I think that's that's great. I, I think you're getting the best out of people doing it that way. And it, I think as well, it, what it helps with is is being able to tell the truth because you know if, if a character or an actor doesn't understand, doesn't feel the character, and I mean a lot of starting out actors and and even sort of middle of the road actors, they'll do it. They'll do it for the money. They'll do it for for the experience. But it's really something when you can get an actor who really feels that they were you know they nurtured this character, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's the thing. I mean, when you have to live it and and. It's, it's fantastic. It's much easier to produce your, your, your performance. You don't need to practice so much because it just flows, you know, because you understand everything from, from where that character came from, from the desires, the, the worries. I mean, when you have that in your mind as you're being able to produce things on screen, I mean, it's, the performance is much easier to, to, to be convincing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's what I do. It's not exactly orthodox, but it works for me. Yeah, and it works so well uh, in Out There. Um, I love what you said about uh, being minimal and really paring things down, uh, you know, and we, of course we were talking about dialogue and a lot of other things. But mm. um, the way that you told such a complex story, there are so many things going on, this relationship, um, you know, between uh, Rob and Jane. And uh, you, there is so much going on there. there. There are a lot of other things going on here that you told oh, us their relationship is really where I really went to town because yeah. there's so much there's a lot of symbolism and that's what I'm really fascinated by symbolism so things like even there's a tense scene between them where you know she's in the bathtub mm. and uh, she's speaking to him I mean the fact that she's in, we, we very much choreographed that scene and it doesn't look like much because it looks like a standard cliche a girl in the bathroom and she tells him she's pregnant but all that was very planned to the T, you know. The water was to represent a sort of cleansing of purity. You know what I mean? Wow. It was, you know, and, and that sounds a bit pompous perhaps. But for me, these kinds of things, full of hidden meanings. I love films that have hidden meanings. I'm a big David Lynch fan. Oh, so yeah. So I watch his films. I'm always thinking, what does that mean? What is this? 
and it's so important to me what I put a lot of myself into the characters and into the films so it's uh, it's very heavy every little thing is put there there's nothing left to chance you know from the set design to the costumes it's you know the color schemes are, are all organized way in advance we know there's nothing left to chance and I think that's what makes uh, that's what has created my films to get better and better and the fact that I'm attaching more and more detail to every story. Wow. Wow. This, you just ramped this up a whole new level for me because I, I wasn't aware of this level of symbolism that you were using. And now I'm thinking back to these scenes. I'm like, you're right. You're right. Wow. And it's, now it's, I a, it's, a, it's a steady descent because you think the first scene you see Jane, it's in a lush garden, almost like the Garden of Eden. Mm. And that's to represent, you know, things that when people are young, when things are happening, everything seems like it's slightly blurry, you know, slightly beautiful and out of, you know, wonderful sunshine. Then there's, you know, responsibility coming. She tells him she's she's pregnant. He kind of like, oh, OK, I kind of that's cool. Thank you very much. <laughs> and and then she's in the water. And then, you know, you have the scene where uh, she's scared and, you know, they're putting together. They're kind of brought back together again because, you know, circumstances pushing you back together again. And the audience never knows what's going on throughout the film. Right. Uh, they know that he's he's woken up in the woods and he has no memory and bits and pieces are floating back. But their relationship has has a has a an arc, you know. They 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 start to distance themselves in the bathtub. That's why exactly there's a distance. They they she he sits at her feet, mm. which is to show that that gap, that space. I wanted that, but we were very thorough because when we first started rehearsing that, Connor sat right up close to her and I, we had to pry them away. That was a distance scene. And, and those kind of little details is what we really worked on. That's what I mean to you when we refined things with the actors. And, it's, uh, and even to the end when things seem to get better, you know, they, they have their hands together and they're, they're having that moment where they seem to re reconcile everything. Mm -hmm. uh, reconcile everything. Um, and then that moment where they hit responsibility uh, no pun intended. <laughs> and it all disintegrates because their, their foundations, their, their fears are not, their fears are built on unsturdy ground. So no matter how much things change around them, deep down, things are not, you know, they're not, they're hollow. Things don't, things don't stand. And that's why they keep falling back into the positions they were. Like after the, the tragedy at the, at the road happens, I mean, you know, <laughs> he, he disintegrates. Mm -hmm. You know, and you see his true character because what I wanted to, I Rob, and what things that happen a lot in in horror films is you're kind of given a character, and he's a very interesting cliche character perhaps, but the problem is is that the motivations are always fairly straightforward. Mm -hmm. His motivation is to survive, but our main character is not a perfect guy. He's not a good guy. He's just a human. Mm -hmm. He fails, and he's scared, and he doesn't. He's scared of responsibility. These are human traits. You know, he's not a he's not a character who's going to do the right thing. He's a character who's going to do the, the thing that he's been programmed. That's part of his spirit. And his spirit is he's still a shy little boy who's not ready for responsibility. And that's what the film was about. Of course, I threw zombies and a few scares <laughs> in, in the mix to make it to give it a, a kind of format. Right. But that's that's essentially what it was about. I took a very, you know, simple theme and uh, turned it into our movie. Yeah. Yeah. And what I appreciated, you know, especially about Rob is he is anything but one dimensional. You know, we see a lot of one dimensional characters in horror, especially, you know, a lot of low budget 
Um, because, you know, again, you know, people are, are still, you know, maybe don't have the experience or it's just really difficult to write a good, interesting character. And I thought Rob was amazing because you're right, you know, he didn't always do the right thing. He wasn't the hero, you know, the, the guy that was just always um, making all the right decisions. Um, he was doing what he was doing according to the person that he was and what he was deep down inside. And he wasn't always consistent because nobody's ever you know, 100% consistent and does the same exact thing over and over again. You know, we, we stray wildly in our habits and our tendencies and things. And we see that in Rob, you know, he, he acts one way in one situation and then in another situation, he acts completely differently. And that's as humans, you got it right. I mean, he's a human. And as humans, that's how we're programmed. That's the way we work. And you captured that. Uh, he, he is so real. And uh, I think that's a lot of what drew me into this is he is such a fascinating character. So very well, well done. It, he, I very much enjoyed working with Connor on them because, uh, it, you know, like I said, I think every writer puts a little bit of themselves into every character. You know, I mean, they might throw masks and filters over it, you know, make him a astronaut, make him a monster. But essentially, we all, all we are all writing from from experience or from a piece of our, ourselves. And for me, I mean, Connor, I have a lot of sympathy for, for Rob's character because it's, you know, it came from me. Mm -hmm. And I understand where he's coming from. Responsibility is a scary thing. And uh, especially when it's forced upon you, as in this case. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you throw the end of the world in there. Mm. <laughs> makes makes a lot of fun on screen. Oh, and I'll tell you what, you built the tension, you built things up because the whole time you you knew that something crazy was going to happen. And, well, you uh, see that was the the interesting thing with the house, you see, because that's that's I wanted to give everybody the impression um that this was going to be another chase movie, you know, another Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Ireland. Uh, uh because that's where the house comes in, you know, because mm -hmm. he arrives at this this strange house and there is some dodgy stuff going on at that house. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they got power because that's uh, the generator that he found is, is all wired up to the, to the house. And he kind of appears here and then starts everybody in the audience presumes, ah, it's one of those movies. He's going to be chased around the countryside by a dodgy guy with a chainsaw. <laughs> and that's what we're expecting. But I'm a very big fan of curveballs. Yes. I absolutely love to trick people. Show me, show the left hand, hit him with the right. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, and I used to do a bit of boxing, so for me that was a and that was my trick. Oh, hey! <laughs> Show him a little left, get him with the right, you know. But uh, but that's that's what it is, and that's what I think is so fantastic. And one of the films that really captivated that was uh, *Dust Till Dawn*. Mm, yeah. And that was a perfect film. Everybody thought that that was going to be a gangster movie. Quentin Tarantino, George Clooney in this titty bar, and suddenly, <laughs> boom! Vampires everywhere. It was the yeah. ultimate hook to the face yeah nobody saw that coming i mean if if anyone did they're very good because i did not see that one coming oh yeah and it knocked me back and that's he, tarantino and rodriguez got that right because it's not that the idea was so good it was the fact that it was we they were building up a tone a, a cliche of a film and they turned it into something else i love things that evolve into things mm, yeah and that's the thing we started uh with a, a certain style of film and we've tried to evolve it into something else. And uh, hopefully the audience will like it. But, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. I love getting good reviews. So it's, uh, it's, we're happy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I'm, I'm not surprised that people are taking really well to it because that you, you do have curveballs in there and you don't try to explain everything. You just sort of present us 
with things and you're just weaving a story around all of this and you don't try to tie up all the loose ends. You leave some questions in my mind. You leave me interested. Um, and, you know, the house obviously was the biggest one here because a lot uh, of people uh, ask about the house. Yeah. And the thing is, like I said, when I this was always going to be a piece of a bigger story. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you now and as I'm going to be you're going to be the first person to find out about this. We are making the feature of that film. Amazing. And we expected in 2013. Uh, and it's going to be basically it's going to take place six months later. And it's going to follow Rob and uh, his survival in post-apocalyptic Ireland. But we're decided, I mean, I've been very influenced by things like The Walking Dead. I've been doing zombie research, oh, good man. so to speak. Yeah. And so I've been watching every zombie film I can get my hands on just to see the formula, see what people are doing. And I've seen some good stuff, seen some less good stuff. <laughs> but one thing that really bothers me in films is I don't think there's been that many really realistic horror films. You know, there's always, oh, the guy's a little chubby or, you know, like Lost. Yeah. Lost was, drove me mental. They had the chubby guy with the curly hair. I mean, they've been there for how many years? Yeah. And they yeah. still look, I think he was getting bigger with every season. Yeah, yeah, I and, think so. Yeah. And that's the thing. He's living on bananas. I don't know anyone on a banana diet who, <laughs> who weighs 300 pounds. Right. You know what I mean? So that kind of bothered me. And The Walking Dead kind of bothered me. As much as I love it as a show, I love Love The Walking Dead, but you know, they got electricity, they're on a farm, it's great, there's magical food coming from no crops, cows <laughs> are sitting there, but there's no cows, they're, they have a generator, but no zombies come. I mean, those kind of little things really drive me crazy. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, what I decided to do with Out There the Feature is there's going to be no water, no electricity, no food, because in Ireland, in wintertime, there is no food. So you have to scavenge. And so even Connor, I was speaking to the actor, Connor, Connor's going to diet down. He's going he's gonna to do a Christian veil. Oh, wow. So, but he's a devoted enough actor to do something like that. I mean, we're training him up. I mean, he's doing all sorts of crazy fasting diets and stuff <laughs> to do this role. But he's that serious. He, he liked doing it so much and uh, that, that we're going to take it as far as we can take it. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait for that feature. That is such great news because, you, it, again, I think you know, a great film just leaves you wanting more. And yeah. especially the final scene in this film, the final shot. It, I, thinking about it just gives me goosebumps, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody out there because you just got to see this to really uh, experience the effectiveness of what's going on. But now, in light of the feature... Um, you know, I sort of, um, I'm trying to think of where this is going to go because I think I just naturally sort of extended the story, uh, from the final shot, uh, as you can imagine, you know, what may have happened after credits roll. Um, and, uh, so now it's, it, it adds a little bit of an interesting, uh, element there to, to figure out, uh, what's going to happen and, and where Rob's going to go. And I'm just really, really interested in that and, Man, if it is anywhere near the quality and the amount of imagination and storytelling and just overall, overall. Well, I will, I will give you a hint. There's going to be a little bit more action because Out There by itself was a cool little piece because it was very atmospheric. But in the feature, we hope to throw a lot more action in there, mm. you know, and yeah. that's what we're hoping to do. I'm currently in, in uh, talks with certain uh, special effects and gunsmiths and stuff like that because I, I've come to the conclusion, no, I don't want to do any CGI. I want to, if you know, we're going to shoot somebody, 
We're going to rig them up with explosives, you know? Excellent. Music to my so, ears. And that's the thing. We're going to shoot, shoot it all here on the estate because we should do all the films here. And uh, mostly because in the wintertime, which I hope to shoot in, it looks bleak. Oh. I mean, have you seen the film The Road? Yeah, yeah. It's like that awesome. for like six months. Oh, wow. And I mean, The Road with zombies. I mean, how cool would that be? Wow. Man, I've, I've, always, I, I've always wanted uh, zombies in the wintertime. You know, that's always been an interesting sort of uh, question in my mind. We haven't seen a lot of it. Um, the only one that comes to mind is really dead snow, and that's hardly serious at all. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as far as realism goes, you got to throw that one out. Um, and we, uh, I, I think we are going to see it in, uh, the, or, uh, in the Walking Dead, of course. Uh, we, we've seen a little bit. Um, but again, it's, it's just uh, nothing that's uh, really been explored. And especially from your country, the area that you're in, the look uh, is just going to be outstanding. It's going to be perfect. Uh, being that you're... Well, we, we, we take our visuals very seriously around here because uh, I'm, a, I'm a technical guy. So I went to film school and, you know, I, I was always very fascinated with making things look wonderful. I love the beauty in the danger. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I love things to look wonderfully attractive and beautiful, but always underneath undertones of evil. You know, that's that's always been my kind of my thing. Mm. So, I mean, we take myself and my cinematographers. I mean, for out there, we had like four cinematographers working the camera. Wow. And I mean, it's quite, we had uh, Stefano Bararola, who's uh, I've worked with many times. He's and he's an Italian. So he's got the perception. He, he is very interested in art. So one thing we always do, we uh, we look at it, we take artists that we like and we study their pictures to reenact some some of the shots that we see in, in, in the museums and things hmm. because we're, we're every, every film has a theme and out there was Monet. If you see the end of, end of uh, the film where he's running through the woods, I mean, some of those uh, wide shots, they're all taken out of Monet. You have that kind of that light sort of gloss look, you know, that, that you, Monet did so much. I mean, that was our, uh, that was our thing. I mean, most people will never be as nerdy as to spot that, but, uh, but myself and my cinematographer have a good laugh every time about it. Wow. Wow. This, uh, you used, I think, the perfect word for this, and it's art, um, because I, I was admiring the, the visual, uh, the way visually this came across as far as uh, the wide shots, the close-ups, the, the way you blocked things out. Um, mm -hmm. It was very, very appealing, the way that everything was blocked out. And now, again, talking with you and just realizing the amount of intent that there was in uh, how things were placed, the set design, you know, the blocking and everything, um, that just comes as no surprise now that it was so appealing. And even if you were not specifically aware as you're watching this of why this is so appealing, there is just inherently something about it, the way you've designed this and put it together that is very, very appealing. It, it makes it very enjoyable to watch. And again, a lot of it is just sort of... Um, a subconscious thing, I think. And that's great art. That is great art. So, again. Well, we enjoy it. But, I mean, we were very lucky. Like I said, we had a bunch of cinematographers who were all working the camera. I mean, we had Philip Morozov as well, who is uh, a Russian cinematographer. It was like the UN. <laughs> we had all these different countries, and they all bring in different influences. Uh, because, like, Russia has amazing cinema. And, and my friend, I mean, he, we, we grew up together. And uh, when I was in my first school band, I mean, he was kind of like our roadie. And anyway, he grew up to become like a cinematographer and director. And, and 
you know, he came onto the project and was working the Steadicam because some of those Steadicam shots, I mean, that was crazy. We really tried to do some some fun stuff with the spinning around. And I mean, because those woods that we have, I mean, that, you know, I mean, you probably have stuff like that in, in your country, but there's not too many places like that around here. Mm-hmm. So it was really uh, a lot of fun for us to, to mess around in the swamp with the Steadicam. <laughs> yeah, the Steadicam was so well done. It was so effective. And yeah, I mean, the thing, the scene I think about is the one you mentioned, the spinning around in the woods, just how great it was. And again, it communicated the confusion, what Rob's going through and so uh, it just everything, everything was done. And even you had some great pans, you know, just the camera movement in general in this film was just amazing. And and uh, now finding out you had you know four cinematographers uh, all working on this that, uh, again, that just it really shows. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking specifically as far as uh, other camera movement goes to the scene um, where Rob is uh, walking towards you. He's at the house, and he he goes past that old, dusty, beat-up car. And uh, oh, he just yeah. kind of goes... That was, that was my grandpappy's car. Oh, I loved it. I loved the look of that thing. And then, um, so he goes past the camera, and then the camera just slowly pans down, and slowly pans down, and you see the severed hand on the ground, which uh, was just so good. Uh, everything about that shot, that scene was fantastic, even down to the way that the hand looked. Um, it was uh, very gruesome. You could tell it had probably been rotting there for a while. Oh, it was, we had so much fun with that because I wanted a really slow shot. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I mean, it, in fact, we probably were a little bit extreme with the, with the speed, but there is nothing worse than everybody thinking, oh, get down, get down already, get down. <sighs> And it just goes on and it seems to go on forever and then arrives down on a severed hand. I mean, it's it's kind of a little cliche, but we I love love using cliche and kind of mixing it up a bit because I mean that I mean sets up everybody in a horror horror aspect, you know. Straight away, horror movie, great. Oh. Severed hands and, and, and burnt out cars. <laughs> I mean it's uh, it's everything a horror fan wants. So yeah, it was not I mean, that's what I want to see in films. I love when people put a bit of tongue in cheek in cliche. Oh yeah, yeah, and it was not too. I mean, it was not too drawn out for me at all. I think it was just right because, man, it, again, you're building tension. This whole this whole film's about building tension and then rewarding me, you know, as at the climax. And that's kind of this shot is sort of a a, a miniature sort of example of that. Because you're going down and you're like, what is going to be down there? What is going to be down there? And you're wondering the whole time. And we're rewarded with this gruesome severed hand at the bottom. It, um, you know, it did not, it, you know, cliche never came into mind. Um, you know, it was it never, uh, never anything where I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. You know, I've, I've seen that before or anything. It was really good. And actually, if anything, it kind of reminded me of a little Fulci moment. That you had there, um, just thinking of that—that's something that maybe Fulci would have done. Well, I mean, I was—I uh, wrote my thesis at university on video nasties, and he uh, was definitely. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know, I'm—I'm I'm a very. Uh, <laughs> when I was in university, I mean, I went to school with with a lot of very conservative types. So when myself and my my best friend made our thesis on uh, on the video nasties, we were looked upon like absolute demons. Wow. <laughs> And I mean, you know, when you're when you're studying great films like like uh, like uh, zombie flesh eaters and things like that, I mean, it's hard not to have some of that rub off on you, you know. Oh yeah. yeah. And I mean, I enjoyed those films so much when I was growing up. I mean, you know, I really really enjoyed that era of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was just low budget, 
but making great stuff. I mean, I Spit on Your Grave was another one that really, oh, yeah, I loved it. You know, and then and we and it was really hard for us because here in Europe we're we're quite we're a little bit more conservative than the United States probably when it comes to films. They censor a lot, so I remember having to go on eBay to try and buy an uncensored copy of Cannibal Holocaust. Oh yeah, and my God, I had to see that. I had to see it. You know, yeah, I had to see what the fuss was about. So yeah, that no, was fantastic to write a, write a thesis on it. Was great, and it gave me so much influence. You know, to see these films, because some of them, they're not very good, but hmm. they were all trying to do something, and it was all very, very cool. Yeah. And yeah. certainly was, rubbed off on me anyway, so. Yeah, it was a great style, a great way of doing things that, uh, you know, even if the movie isn't quite so great, it's still sort of fun to watch, and it's just, it's a, a period in time that I think was great, and um, they really, you know, especially the Italian filmmakers, man, they, they, they just put a lot of pride into what oh, they exactly. did. Especially people like Dario Gento, because Dario Gento for me was probably one of the most influential people in my life hmm. when it comes to, to horror cinema, because the guy, he does things with colors. Now, I'm a, I'm a big fan. A lot of people nowadays need to saturate their films, right? right? I see it all the time. And you know what? The films, the cameras are so good today. Like, they're insane. What we have today is ridiculous for so little money. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has a 5D or a 7D or one of those, and they can shoot really high quality video, mm -hmm. which, you know, back in the day, I mean, you needed to have big money to pull out anything that was like HD, you know? Exactly. But, but nowadays I see so much of it. They desaturate, they make these great cameras with their great color sampling look kind of like a little, not heavy on the contrast, but a little bit on the flat side. Where I always want to push up the colors. I like LSD style looking, <laughs> looking things. And Dario Gento was very much like that. He was very into pushing the reds and the browns. But all his films have a color scheme. And like ours, we, we very much try and every film has a color scheme. Mm -hmm. You know, we try, we try and push those as much as possible. Because it's as much important to the film as the script. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh... It, it's just again very intentional, and it's it's art, you know. Argento, Argento made art. He's still making art, you know. He's he's at a different place in his life now than he was back in the '70s and and part of the '80s, whenever I, I think his best work came out. Oh, definitely. But uh, you know, that's again uh, they they look at it, and even you and and the people that you're working with on your films, uh, you're viewing it as a craft. You know, this is something that uh, you really. Um, it's an art to you. You're you're craftsman, and I I know I I um I think the best I ever heard it put, and I, I have to go back and watch it again. Was in um some of the extras on the DVD for Zombie Flesh Eaters, Zombie Two, um where um they were interviewing uh, a lot of the the people that did makeup, you know, De Rossi and the, and the people that were around him, and uh, just they they went into it saying we put so much care into what we do, so much time we do this with our own hands, and we take a lot of pride in it, and uh, which you could tell in the zombies in that in that movie. I mean, they were just unreal. They were fantastic. Um, so that's. Uh, but what makes that so fantastic is the attention to detail. Yes. Because the big things, I mean, a lot of the times we're very sort of oblivious, but it's the little things that destroy a movie. Yeah. You know, it's not, oh, it's a, you know, the film's about a giant pink elephant or whatever. No, it's, it's the little things. It's a little bit in the sound, cheap makeup, an odd special effect that doesn't look good. And slowly, bit by bit, it tears away the seams of a film. And back then, they didn't have what we have nowadays. You had all this crazy grading and all this crazy comp compositing that you can do. But, you know, you really had to shoot things right. So you really had to plan things 
to a huge extent, even the cheaper films, I mean, they're very well put together. I mean, if you consider the, how difficult it is nowadays to make a film, it's, you know, and how hard it must have been to shoot on 35 millimeter or super 16 mm-hmm. and not to be able to see what you're shooting half the time. You know, you, they didn't get a chance till they got back to the, to the scanner and they processed all the film to okay. realize that, you know, the cinematographer had his thumb in the way or <laughs> there was a, right. somebody left coffee on, on next to the zombie, you know? Oh yeah. It was tremendously expensive to be doing a lot of takes and you had to get it right. Um, so that, that intent was that you had to be very intentional, very aware of what you were doing. You couldn't leave much up to chance. And exactly. And, and those people were, were meticulous artists. I mean, you know, it's whether it's a question of taste. A lot of people will say to me, Oh, but, but they didn't make art, but I mean, they made art in their own, their own style. Right. And, uh, Art is, uh, is down to point of view, you know, what, what you and I might find wonderful. Uh, your average Joe on the street might think we're a bunch of freaks. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is there is a huge amount of art behind these films. Mm. And, uh, and that's the thing. I think, I think that's what I'd like to see a little bit more of coming out of the indie scene. I want to see some real passionate artists coming out and, and doing things full of hidden messages, attacking politics. Because, you know, people like Romero, I mean, Romero was extremely political. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you, when you look at, uh, I was watching Dawn of the Dead uh, the other day, the, the original. Mm-hmm. Oof. I mean, everything behind that film was, was a huge criticism on, on Western society. Absolutely. But, I mean, most, most people might just see zombies. Mm-hmm. And that might happen to my film as well. People might just see zombies or they might just see, you know, scary houses. But the fact of the matter is those films are, have so much more to say than just the, you know, the, the window dressing. Right, right. It, uh, I, I think you are, and I really appreciate what you are doing because I agree. We need we need more out there. I, I want a film that uh, goes deeper, that gives me a lot more to chew on, and is really going to stick in my head for a long time afterwards, and have me thinking about it and discovering more about it, and being able to discuss it rather than you know say, hey, this is a, a straight up zombie film, man. These guys they were in a house and the zombies attacked and the guy got killed and his girlfriend got drug out. You know, uh, I, I want something a little bit more. I, I you know I want to figure out what did this mean? You know what what why did this guy do what he did? And and this is such a complex character here. This is great. You know I want more of this. I want more art. More uh, you know like you said the use of color. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, you brought up Argento's use of, of lights and color, color schemes, um, because I, I agree you're you're missing that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, a, a really high profile film, um, 28 days later, 28 weeks later. Um, fantastic films. Fantastic films, but uh, again, they they kind of championed this uh, this very stark, desaturated look. You know, you take and they a, made it gritty, but they shot very low quality cameras, which yeah. I actually really respect because, I, I mean, uh, Danny Boyle is not someone who can't afford a 35 millimeter camera right. or right. a, you know, Ari, uh, Ari camera or a, a red camera. He can afford all these things. He chose like he always chose. He's always respected the low budget. Mm. I mean, even that one two seven hours, he shot that with a 5D. I mean, these are these are artistic choices. He can justify everything he does in his films, and but he popularized a lot of the desaturation, a lot of that sort of video look with films, mm-hmm. and that's great. I love it. I, I enjoy the video look very much. But there's a there's a downside to video. You know, the downside is yeah, you don't get that beautiful sharpness. You don't have those colors because you just don't have that kind of information on on low level video. Right. It gives you that look, it gives you a feel, it gives you that atmosphere. 
Yeah. But it is it is a, a specialized choice, you know, and it is is a tone of paint, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but I I like I like beautiful things, you know. I love. I was very influenced myself. Uh, my parents, obviously, my father's an artist, and uh, and my mother was an architect. So I had art and and uh, design all around me oh, from wow. a very early age. And they were very keen on showing me. I grew up uh, in America, actually, when I was born in New York. And um, while I was there, I mean, you know, it was the 80s and New York was kind of dangerous. Kids were getting kidnapped, so I wasn't allowed to play outside. Hmm. Uh, not like these damn kids today. <laughs> but I was, I was uh, stuck at home a lot of the time. And, you know, um, being an American kid at the time, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't go anywhere. So... Uh, what I did, and what my father used to do, he used to go down to the video shop and used to rent me some great films. Now, I was allowed to rent one cartoon. Now, bear in mind, I was five. Uh, I was allowed to rent a cartoon, but I had to watch. For every one that I got to choose, my dad would choose one. Now, my dad was really into art house cinema and French New Wave and all that. So he would rent me one European cinema, a piece of film, with every one I rented. And... And he showed me some really fantastic film. And after a while, I didn't want to choose the cartoons anymore. I wanted my dad to choose me great stuff. And he did. And, you know, I was massively influenced. And when I, when I left and I, you know, I came back to Ireland, I mean, my whole house was buying videos. Every little bit of scrap of change I would give you. I wouldn't eat lunch so I could go out and buy films. And I'd go to HMV, which is our kind of, I suppose, uh, our... I don't know what you have in America nowadays, but it was supposed to be like our price. Do you have our price or no. uh, Best Buy? Best oh, Buy. Best Buy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, Best Buy. It was the equivalent of our Best Buy. And I would not eat lunch. I was a little skinny kid, big afro. <laughs> uh, and I used to not eat lunch and I'd live off of breakfast and mince. So I could go home, uh, go to town. I lived in the country. Go to town just to buy films. And I would raid the films. And it was worth it. All those hunger pains was worth it because I have a massive video collection. Oh, and wow. from videos to DVDs, and I love it. Even today, I still go to the shop and buy. A lot of people download, and that's fine. That's cool. That's a changing of times. But I am a buyer. I go to buy the Blu-ray. I buy the DVD. And I buy the mug. I love, you know, I want one of those Texas Chainsaw Massacre mugs. They are great. <laughs> and I'm so jealous of every time I see somebody with one of those. Yeah. Oh, well, no one. This is this is all making sense now. Why you are the uh, s type of filmmaker that you are? Uh, why you're just so artistic and and very very good at what you do? Because man, from such a young age, you were just raised on this stuff. You were raised on great film, and uh, it, it's really great that you at a young age you really uh, took the incentive. You know, took a, the initiative to uh, want to seek out. Um, you know, better movies, more artistic films, all these European films that uh, a lot of people miss out on, especially nowadays. They do, they do. And I mean, even, but, but I would, don't get me wrong, I loved my B movies as well. I mean, my, one of my childhood favorite films was Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Beautiful. I mean, you know, yeah. when I was growing up, they used to play on the television. Mm -hmm. And my God, I saw that film so many times. <laughs> and you know what? I loved clowns. You know, everybody says, oh, but I'm scared of clowns. No, I love them, especially the ones from outer space. Yeah. Fantastic. I never, I never looked at cotton candy the same way again. Yeah, yeah, true. But, uh, but it was, uh, it was you know, no, it was great. And that's the thing. It's just I found myself in a really great position to be open to a lot of different stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, the best art 
you know, you gets influenced by by different kinds of music, different kinds of books, different kinds of pictures. You know, mm-hmm. anything that's kind of you know you want to tattoo on your soul, so to speak. Oh yeah. You know, and all these things had such a, an important piece of my life growing up. You know. Wow! Wow! And it it just really I think formed just a fantastic filmmaker, and uh, I think man, you you know, it just better thing, bigger and better things. I think are are uh, coming your way, and I think you're gonna just keep. Uh, keep making great work and just building on what you've done. You know, of course, this feature again, I'm so excited for. And um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the zombies uh, at the end of the film, um, which I really, really love. The first zombie that you see in this movie uh, is fantastic. The way that uh, he's uh, kind of pulling himself up off the road. He, just Ian Lavelle Walsh is one of Ireland's upcoming stars. The guy has been in two of my films. He's fantastic. He is the hardest working kid I have ever seen. Oh. I mean, he was standing and getting up and in blood for hours. And that makeup that he was had took an entire morning to do. I could imagine. And we had two or three makeup artists on him. Wow. And the, the guy is a legend. I mean, he was standing there and his parents were kind of wanting to, you know, making the signs, tapping their fingers on the watch. <laughs> and he comes over and whispers to me, he's like, look, don't worry. I really want to do this. This is better than school. This is way better than holidays. And he said to me, he's like, I will stay here all night if I have to. Wow. And I mean, when you get that devotion out of a 12, 13-year-old kid, oh. I mean, you know, he's going to be a star in the future. And I mean, I reckon he's a good looking kid. I reckon the, uh, he's going to crack America by the time he's 16. Wow. Wow. He but did an amazing star. job. You know, to play. I mean, who doesn't want to be a zombie? Let's be honest. Oh yeah, but to do it this well, you know, I mean, it, it, anybody can be a zombie. I mean, and everyone thinks they can be a zombie, and and whether or not it's always done convincingly or not, you know, that's that's the question. But this guy made this zombie special. Um, again, just uh, it's it's the details, it's the nuances, you know, everything from again the way he just kind of slipped a little bit getting up off the road and, and stumbling uh, towards the car. And the way that uh, he conveyed th- the fact that his, he obviously had like a broken leg or something he was trying to walk on. And um, he just, he really sold that. Um, and even the, the little blood drools coming out of his mouth and uh, just, he was a fantastic zombie. And I really, really admire someone that can, can do a great, memorable, effective zombie. So that's special. Well, we were, we were very keen on the zombies. You see, the thing is, one of the things that I really liked, and I loved sci- science fiction as well when I was growing up, and one of the films that always terrified me was Alien, mm-hmm. right? And But the coolest part about Alien was the fact that you never really got a good look at the damn thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. You'd see a tail, you'd see a head, but, but it was always dark and you never got a good look. And it's the same in Jaws. Right. What makes Jaws fantastic, you never get a really good look at, the, at the, sh- the shark. It's always a little bit of here, a little bit of fin. And I wanted to do that with the zombies in this film because with low-budget zombies, one of the biggest, most disappointing things in zombie films is when the makeup doesn't look great. Mm-hmm. So I had to go and find the best zombie people I could find. And I did, I think. I found the best in my circle, is anyway. Oh, yeah. And uh, Zanet Vang and Terry Pinnell were the two main zombie people that that did all the zombie work and we spent i mean i told them look cost is no object i said whatever it takes to make me the most horrific looking monsters ever because it wasn't about we wanting to show off all this this zombie makeup it had to be convincing because if it didn't look good 
the whole film was for nothing, you know, because it, it just, everybody would go, uh, cheesy, cheesy face paint on a kid. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's a really good job. And I, I was really thrilled. And with the way we shot it, we shot, we did something a little unorthodox. We shot against the sun. And that shot when the other zombies come running across, you don't see much. Right, you know? right. Because that's, it's kind of um, vignetted a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you're and right. So, and uh, that's what we wanted because you didn't really get a good look. You see people running and you see shadows running. I mean, the only one you kind of see is the one that comes through the car door. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was fantastic. I mean, what a zombie he was as well. I mean, he was brilliant. I've never seen such an enthusiastic actor ever i mean he was doing that an entire day ramming through i mean he was the most excited person i ever met and he was fantastic and the thing is we really wanted to show what we showed we wanted to make was really make sure that it was really good and what we didn't show was suggestive right and we really wanted that and i want i like things being a little bit hidden like like i said I, i'm subtlety for me is far more interesting than than you know lobbing things around the place right so that's what i wanted i wanted i wanted subtlety you know yeah yeah, I, I appreciated that. Um, that you, you know, you didn't just try to heap it on at the end, you know, and give me just a ton of stuff with a lot of zombies and a lot of. Th- I mean, it was very, very subtle. Um, not to say that there's not some great zombie action. You get to see some really cool stuff because you do, and uh, what you do see is great. But you implied a lot. You know, I, I think um, a lot of this intensity and uh, a lot of what I was enjoying were, were things that you were sort of uh, making my mind do. You know, my mind was filling in a lot of the gaps because you implied uh, a lot of the action. Uh, something would happen off camera and you just implied what happened off camera by using sound or, um, you know, some other sort of uh, technique. And uh, so it wasn't always visual, but uh, the impact was was there. Um, it, it was just as good and probably better because, again, uh, horror... It, it, to me, the, you know, the reason I'm scared by something, a, a horror movie, is because of what it does in my mind, what it makes me think, what uh, it makes me make up. You know, does it get inside my head and really start doing things? Do I start seeing things in my mind because of this? And uh, you did that really, really well. Um, it's a reason. It, it's a very, very scary ending. Very creepy. I mean, it all just you're creeped out the entire film. But this, again, just kind of brings it all together and uh, brings it to a great climax. So uh, very, very well done. Very well done. Well, the sound for us is always an interesting thing because, I mean, what makes great horror films is sound. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, if you show, the less you show, but the more you hear, I mean, that's what was so powerful about films like The Blair Witch Project or uh, the one that I saw uh, the other day was Grave Encounters. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I, that was a great movie. Yeah, like us. I mean, I didn't expect much because, you know, I saw the trailer and I was like, you know, it looks like pretty, pretty mediocre stuff. But it really was not. It really, you know, had me hiding under the covers. And it takes quite a lot to make me hide under the covers. <laughs> yeah, that's a scary one. one. Things, yeah. I was really analyzing it because it was really interesting to me. What makes those films really scary is sound. Mm-hmm. You know, those drones, the, 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 the buildup of sound. Because they don't have any music. It right. must be one of the most. I've never done a film that had no music. So for me, I, wouldn't, I don't have any experience in this, but it must take such, such care to build up tension with no music to help you. And they managed to do it. And one of the things I did when I started this film is I got Tony Kiernan of Moynihan and Russell Studios. Uh, and he had worked with me before, but he, was, he understands. I mean, he's, he's a sound professional and he does a lot of advertising, a lot of stuff like that, but he knows films and he knows 
how to create tension in a, in a scene because he did wonderful things for my past film. And the moment I had this, I took it to Tony and I said, Tony, you, you got to help me here. I mean, this film, it's, it looks all right, but you know, you need to give it that, that kick. And he did. I mean, he gave it, he gave it that kick and it really terrified him because one of the things we really wanted was that, that mass scale of loneliness. Yeah. Because even there's, there's the whole way through the film, he's just wandering these huge, huge, trees and this forest and this massive thing the whole time we're shooting wide i mean very few people have the privilege to shoot really wide like that because you know you see it you know an airplane or you see somebody's house or some dude looking at the, the camera <laughs> right so you don't get that option but i do get that option so we shoot as wide as we can go and it looks phenomenal because high budget films you know Sp steven spielberg shoots really wide so you can see all the set design, but you know, he spends thousands and thousands and millions and millions on his set design. So, but most low budget doesn't get to do that. Where I, very lucky, I get to do that. And so that's what we always want. All our films tend to be really huge and very wide shots, lots of forests, lots of beautiful stuff. And that's what we will try and do. And that's one of the things I wanted and needed the sound to go with that. Yeah. And the sound is so important. You know, you can make a, you can make a good film and if you haven't got the sound to go with it, yeah, shooting yourself in the foot. Exactly. Yeah, it ruins it, and that's it. That's uh, you know, sort of the strange thing about a, a great film or you know, great video, anything, is um, how dependent the effect is on the audio. So much more than the video. I mean, you can get away with being a, a mediocre uh, cinematographer, you know, and and where you're you're pretty good at it, but uh, you're it's going to be so much uh, more forgiven by the audience if you have audio that really nails it. And uh, you, you don't have to be 100% perfect in your video or, or, you know, your filming techniques or anything. You just happen to nail both in this one. So, you know, that is, it was just fantastic the whole way around. But it, isn't that just a sort of interesting in such a visual medium how actually reliant the effect is on uh, the audio aspect? It's, it's, it's so important. And that's the, one of the things that's really um, hard for a lot of filmmakers because a lot of people who shoot films, I mean, they, it's, it's, they can find cinematographers. But... Sound designers are hard to come by, particularly in Ireland. Um, we've always had, because it's not about just sticking a few effects. It's a, it's a soundscape. It's a piece of art. Oh, yeah. Itself. Building it? tension and being able to do carry that through. Because with visuals, I mean, you might watch your DVD and it might look a little bit more blue on one screen. Might be, things can change a bit. But sound, sound on a laptop is never going to sound like sound on a, in a cinema. Mm -hmm. you know? And it has to be able to have the same effect watching off a laptop as it is in a, in a cinema with a 7.1 surround sound screen. So to get the medium, to be able to do that, to get that, build that same tension watching things off YouTube or, or whatever, or torrent site or, or, or off a DVD on a, a laptop or watching it in the cinema, it takes, it takes a lot of skill and it takes a great deal of understanding of how people are. And even things like volumes. I mean, you probably didn't notice this because the screener I sent you uh, was on the internet, but the... Uh, the thing is with uh, with sound. I mean, even Tony's such a professional. The whole volume gets louder and louder and louder. Now you probably don't notice that because he's subliminally he puts it up a decibel every every so often, oh, wow. until by the end we're peaking, we're hitting just at the mark before before it starts to go beyond. And so you have that massive buildup, and it it shocks the audience. Perception is everything when it comes to an audience, and even the perception of volume has such an effect on an audience when they're watching a film. And I mean, a director of a film has to really take this into account because so many people who direct films, they neglect this, this idea. And it's so important because it'll, it'll baffle you. 
uh, and it can can really more. I mean, one of the people that uh, that really did this right for me was Alfred Hitchcock. Mm, yeah, Alfred Hitchcock was fantastic. If you watch Psycho, it starts very calm, and as he get they get to the house, it gets more and louder, and the the cellos get rougher, and it, the, everything starts to build up throughout the film till the climax, and then it drops down to a nice calm bit where he's sitting there and in the chair. But I mean, the buildup of, of even just, if you looked at the, vo- the, the waves, I mean, you see it builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up. And that's the kind of thing your fella in the cinema is not going to notice. Right. But that makes such a difference to how your brain handles the information it's, it's being uh, shown. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's all uh, in the subtleties. You're not going to necessarily, like you said, uh, be sitting there and say, wow, this film was really effective. Well, that's because... You know, they did this, this, and this with sounds. It was so subtle. You know, not everybody and most people aren't going to be able to really pinpoint why this was so effective, why the build was so good. You know, a lot of it just happens, and you don't even realize it happens. You just feel the effect. You you experience the effect of it. Brilliance. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, we're, we're kind of coming into a golden period now because Ireland is beginning uh, to have a sort of... Uh, some horror coming out of it because up till now we've had a lot of uh, a lot of drama a lot of sort of you know um you know even even things a lot of we just got out of our sort of ira film period mm-hmm. you know which we had in the 90s you know because we had the troubles here yeah. and we've got what i'd like to call nouveau irish horror and we have some very interesting people starting to emerge out of the woodwork and i mean we're doing things a little bit differently uh, you know we're doing it irish style and uh, hopefully in the next few years, you're going to see a lot of horror coming out of Ireland. And I think there's a lot of really talented people starting to, to pull out some very interesting films, which I think you and your listeners are going to enjoy. You know, there was one film I saw, which really, I mean, when it comes to sound, really took the cake. And that was a film called Citadel. I don't know if you've seen it. No. Um, it is fantastic. You will love this film. The sound design is the most aggressive thing I've ever seen. When I watched it, it was the one thing that stuck out of me. It was so uncomfortable to watch. And it's, it's kind of like a zombie film. It's kind of young. We have in Europe, we have what we call hoodies. And they're these kids that put their hoods up. They wear tracksuits and stuff. And they're quite scary because they're kind of, they'll rob your phone. They'll do this kind of thing. And they're sort of, in this film, they're kind of like zombie-like. And it handles the sound so well. I mean, you know, when there's a murder or there's violence, it's aggressive, you know, it makes you kind of sit back, kind of go, ooh, this is, this is something. And that had the effect because of the sound. I mean, violence by itself is nothing. You know, you show a bit of blood splatter against the wall. What makes the, the effect happen is that splatter. Yes. You know, that sound, that, that sound of the, the, the knife going into the body. I mean, that does it because the visuals, you know, Psycho, for example, going back to Psycho, you never see the knife going, but it's the sound, it's the shower, it's the whole thing. You know, it builds up the tension and, and the screaming. Yes. You're very uncomfortable. And that's what makes great horror, you know, is being able to, to mix and match between the visuals and a serious sound design. Yeah, yeah. And that, uh, that is difficult. The sound design is not easy. Uh, it's, uh, it's so much more difficult, like you said, than just, you know, sitting down at a keyboard or, or um, you know, just composing something real quick, laying it down, and, and, and you're done. There's so many layers. There's so much intent you got to do timing wise and and uh it's it's amazingly difficult in fact um i i was ambitious here a few years ago i've talked about this before on the show but uh, i decided to see if i could just make a a one-man film uh, just a short film about five minutes long 
wanted to see if I could make a zombie film. And I was the guy that did absolutely everything. I was, I was all of the actors. I was directing. I was shooting. I was doing everything um, just to see if I could. Um, just sort of a fun thing. So I shot everything. And then I, I left all of the audio work for post. Uh, I was like, wow, I'll just, uh, if I can get this edited visually down, if I can get the look that I want, then man, all I have to do is go and rip through this. I can do the, the audio, I'll do the sound design and everything, all the, all the post, uh, everything. And uh, man, I'll, I'll have this cranked out pretty easily. So I, I shot it, edited it together. I was really happy with the look of it. And I'll tell you what, it has been sitting there now for, for a couple years um, because the sound design stage has uh, proven so much more difficult uh, than I ever thought. And I'm a musician. I work with sound actually quite a lot. Um, it's not that I'm, uh, I just don't know what I'm doing necessarily. It's just a lot of work. Um, and to get it to sound right and kind of what's in my head, um, you know, I want to communicate that with sound. And it is, it is tough. It is tough. It is so tough. Yeah. But that's why if you found if you found a good one, a good sound designer or someone who understands how to build tension with sound, oof, you gotta buy them lunch. Yeah. You gotta send them thank you cards. You gotta cherish them because they're they're few and far between. Yeah, yeah. Worth uh, their weight in gold, that's that's for sure. Movie. One man one man army, I mean, you must have been exhausted because I mean, even with all the people we had on out there, my God. You know? It's yeah. uh, really something because I mean I really like People who go out because as a filmmaker myself, I mean, I don't do it because of the money, hmm. uh, because there's better jobs than that if you want to make money. Right. I do it because I have to do it. it. It's something in me that I, I I don't think I could be happy in life unless I was making films. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I would have to sit there. I mean, even if I had to work nine to five or you know a six or seven day week, I would still want to come back and do films when I wasn't working. You know, and it's it's so important to me. It's like it's like it's like being a musician. If you have something, you just need to get it out. You need to get your ideas out. And uh, for me, it's it's so important. And to be able to 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 express myself and express these things that I'm feeling, you know, I mean, if I could sing, I would be singing. But uh, but I make films, and that's what I can do. <laughs> yeah, oh, you do it so well. It's uh, I just feel so fortunate um, to have gotten to know you and to get to see your work and and just. Uh, and just discuss these wonderful, wonderful things about film and art and everything. Um, it, it's really great, and I, I just, uh, you know, seeing your passion for it, and it's, it's just you're just driven to do this. You're just driven. You got to do it because you got a vision in your head, and and uh, it, it's just it's screaming to get out. And um, it's uh, it's a great release too, um, and uh, very fulfilling whenever you see kind of your finished product. What what did you think? I mean, seeing this thing. For the first time, um, did you have a, a like a big uh, kind of cast screening, cast and crew um, screening? Actually, you you want to you want to know the truth. Most of the crew still haven't seen it. <laughs> oh really? No, oh. nobody's. I mean, uh, a few press have seen it. We had a we had a showing at the Dublin Horathon, and we had a last minute showing, and they uh, I didn't find out because there was a there was a problem with our with our the DVD we sent it never never was delivered, but the the guys at the Horathon. Uh, they loved it, and they wanted they wanted to show it at the Harlem. We they couldn't fit us in the short film program, so they put us in front of Excision, which was the main film of the festival, and it sold out. We had a huge response, huge. I mean, I had so many people come up to me, shake my hand, and message me on Facebook, and you know, add the page. I mean, the support was phenomenal, and it's really touching to me because. You know, I mean, these are people that I respect. I mean, these are these are the horror fans. Yeah. 
And I mean, if you can't, if you can't make them happy, I mean, you know, what you're doing isn't worth doing. And I was so worried that they weren't going to like it because I mean, you know, I can take rejection, take it all the time. But the one people I don't think I could take the rejection from was if I showed my film at the Harathon and they hated it, Uh, that would have devastated me, (laughs) but they didn't. And they were clapping. And and there's a moment where, uh, in the house where, um, the man uh, Rob starts hearing the sound of something coming towards him from upstairs yeah. and he's in this ridiculous house full of like severed heads and stuff and he's he's doing that and one of the things I wanted was a bit of tongue-in-cheek you know I love a little bit of humor just just before uh you know where all the action starts to happen oh, yeah. and instead of doing what everybody does in a horror film which was just wait there while the serial murderer comes down the stairs or the monster comes down the stairs and just to stand there with a, with a silly looking expression on your face. No, he does what every normal human being would do and run out the place screaming. <laughs> and yeah. when that happened, I think everybody in the room exploded in laughter because they thought it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't hilarious because it was, you know, a joke. It was hilarious because, I mean, everybody, I think, in, who's ever been into horror has always thought, oh, what a doofus still standing there. Yeah, get out of there. What are you doing? Everybody wants to do that. And we did it in our film. And I, I particularly wanted to do that particular scene because it was so important for me just to, to, to give it a sort of poke yeah. and a bit of tongue in cheek because it was so hilarious for us. And it's something that drives me crazy in films. Yeah. And he did it. And he did the cowardly thing and ran really fast. Yeah. And it was another moment that, that gave sort of another dimension, you know, into Rob's character. And uh, just, you know, it was another facet that uh, just made him the fascinating character that, uh, that you, you made him into. So um, that was great. But you seeing it there, uh, you know, on the screen, what were your feelings watching this? Um, were well, you- I mean, it's, it's quite I was very worried because I had never seen it on a, on a cinema before. I was terrified because not only was I so nervous that I botched up my speech, um, uh. I'm one of those guys who doesn't like to talk a lot. Well, obviously, after today, everybody's <laughs> going to call me a liar. But I'm one of those guys who I absolutely hate long, long speeches. I absolutely, I, I, I wasn't the most important person in the room. I wanted to see the movie. I wanted to see Excision. I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. Yeah. So I just wanted to quickly, you know, this is my film. Go and watch it. Hope you like it. And uh, you know, there was always a story that interested me uh, that Louis Bunuel had. And Louis Bunuel did a film called um, The Chien de Loup. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Sort of short film. Yeah. And he was a kind of guy who loved to poke the audience. Mm-hmm. And on the premiere of that film, he had a bag of stones. Right. And he was standing at the back of the room with this bag of stones that he had. And what he was going to do is he was going to use it and fling stones at the audience if they tried to burn him at the stake. <laughs> and I felt like carrying a bag of stones <laughs> yeah. uh, during that film. But no, my bag of stones was not necessary. I, I got pats on the back and that was, that was great. I mean, that's really, really something. And it was huge. I mean, the screen was massive. And uh, frankly, it looked really good. We were very, very happy. And I think the audience... They enjoyed it, and the, the the few casts that were managed to get tickets for the for the screening seemed to enjoy it as well. And uh, yeah, no, we've we've done that showing, and we've sent it loads to America because it's uh, we we love the United States, we we love the culture, we love the fact that uh, so it's it's good safe ground for horror, you know. And there's oh, yeah. there's such a community in America, you know. It's quite inspirational to see uh, what you guys have in America when it comes to the supporting indie horror. And it's, it's fantastic. I mean, like, we love it. I mean, the publications, the, 
the websites, the bloggers, you know, the fans. I mean, there's so many people into this. And it's something really, really pure. And people, a lot of snobs come to me and say, oh, but horror is a bit lowbrow, isn't it? And, you know, I say, well, you know, if it's lowbrow, give me lowbrow. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's fantastic. And there's, you know, these people really matter because these are the guys who really matter. It's not the snobs. It's not those, those people who are going to gonna compare it to, to Citizen Kane. It's the good old-fashioned guy in a Slayer t-shirt who's out with the popcorn to go and watch some scary movies. Those are the guys who really matter. Right. Right. And amazing. And, and it's really important for us to, 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 to be in touch with, with guys who, who like the same things. Yeah. You know, and I, I hope that they, they enjoy it as much as, uh, as people in Hearthon enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait for people to, to see this. Now, are you still doing uh, uh, festivals with this? Or uh, what's, what's oh, sort yeah. of the availability of uh, people to see this? One, we're send, we've sent it all over the place in America. I mean, there's, uh, I'm sending it out to Sacramento. I'm sending it out all over the place. So hopefully uh, we'll get it out there because I think, uh, yeah, I think a lot of guys in America are going to enjoy this. You know? and, oh, absolutely. Uh, way, you know? Oh, I guarantee. I, I, I can't think of a reason why somebody would not enjoy this unless they're the kind of person that is just looking to horror for just very uh very shallow thing like just for the thrill of seeing gore and violence and buckets of blood and stuff if that's why you're watching horror then um you know this again it delivers and there's a build and there's a lot of tension here but it's not like you 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 are putting on a gore fest with this film no no and i mean uh... I was very tempted to throw in a lot more blood, but I mean, the thing is, is in the end, I mean, uh, like I said, I was very influenced by Alfred Hitchcock, and I think a lot of the time, less is more. Yeah. Now, th there is going to be blood, and there's, you know, you got to have blood in a zombie holocaust, you know? But, uh, but I've always been much more on, on just, you know, the story and the characters and just the s situation. I mean, there's nothing more cool than people just being stuck. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> And that's one of the great things about all those classic horror films like, like, um, like Dawn of the Dead or, or Night of the Living Dead or any of those really good influential horror films. I mean, there's, not, there's some blood, but there's not, it's not over the top. It's what's really cool is the fact that they're in a really bad situation. They got zombies coming through the doors. They got, you know, and that's what makes really good. It's, not, it's, it's the buildup. It's the tension. That's what really interests me in, in films. Mm -hmm. You know, the cheap scare, I mean, you watch it once, you know it's coming. But the atmosphere is what, you know... Yeah. And that's what, what post-apocalyptic movies are really about. It's about catching that, that, that atmosphere and really the audience feeling that. Yeah. Because, you know, special effects, they'll get, they'll get better. And, but what keeps, what keeps is timeless is tension. Yes. Tension is timeless. You know what I mean? I watch Hitchcock's films and I still feel tension. Right. You know? And, uh, you know, the special effects, you go, mm, you know, Jaws, it doesn't look so impressive anymore. You know, people look and laugh at the, at the shark, but it's that tension. It's that, you know, watching the kid kick his feet up and down while you see a little bit of the fin. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that everybody expecting it and waiting for it and waiting and waiting and waiting. Yes. And then suddenly it doesn't come. And then suddenly, boom, it's there. Mm -hmm. It's that. It's, and that's timeless. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And this, uh, this is destined uh, to become one of those. And it's, it's another one. Great rewatchability. You know, you talked about, you know, you've seen these Hitchcock films, I'm sure, you know, dozens of times. And Jaws, I, I, I can't even count how many times I've seen Jaws, but I love it every time. It scares me every time. It's just as effective because that's what it does. Um, it's, uh, you can watch it over and over again. And I watched out there, uh, like I said, several times. 
And man, oh, it, it, it did fantastic. it. It did it to me every time. It did. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, I knew what was coming, but it didn't matter because you still had me feeling this. You still had me kind of enveloped in this experience all over again, you know. And uh, it's like riding a roller coaster, you know. It, it, every time you're still going to have that thrill of that roller coaster, you know, even if you've been on it 10 times before. It's still fun to go through that ride again. And, and there's nothing for me, uh, Corey, that's more... Um, more fascinating to actually hear you say that because I, I, for me, you're my target audience. You know, it's people like you who, who I want to reach. You know, you're the people that really motivate me to come out, you know, get out of the, and say, say something, to, to stand up and, and show films and make films, you know, because I'm, I'm quite happy to show my films to myself. But for me, it's so, it's so wonderful to hear, to hear people enjoying the films because, I mean, it's, I enjoy making them and I enjoy... I enjoy people enjoying them, you know. And for me, it's it's such such an honor to to have been able to talk to you as well, you know, and and been able to to kind of hear from a, a real horror connoisseur, you oh. know. I mean, you know, you've grown up on this stuff. You're like me. You're you're probably my generation, oh, yeah. and we grew up with this stuff, and it's so so enjoyable to to be part of it, you know. I mean, you're you're as much part of the horror genre as any of us, you know. I mean, you're there promoting this stuff, getting it to the people, and. It's it's the most important thing, and that's why I'm I was so fascinated today to even speak to you because I mean for me, you know it's 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 people like you that what, what it's about, you know. Oh. Well, thank you, and, thank you. It's uh, man, it's it's I mean the the pleasure's been all mine. I mean I'm I'm just honored that uh, I can be speaking with you. You know I just love, um, you know again you're you're pretty much on the other side of the world from me. We're in different countries and just um, different cultures and different influences. And uh, just knowing that, uh, you know, you, you appreciate what I do, I mean, that just, that, that means uh, uh, quite a lot. And uh, especially just seeing your level of talent and ability uh, where you are right now, I mean, it, it's, uh, it speaks volumes. It's, uh, it's really great. So it's... Uh, well, it, it's fantastic. And it's so, it's so important, you know, that horror is alive and well. And, yes. and you know, your fa listeners and the horror fans, it's important. We just keep supporting this great art. Of, of making horror films because horror is, is, is beautiful. Everybody loves it, you know, in, in, in your audience. And I, I'm fascinated by all different kinds. And I'm so excited to see more stuff coming out. You know, we got a lot coming out already, but there's a lot of talent that has not been heard yet, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited to see as these cameras get cheaper, as people are, have less money, what is going to happen next? Yeah. You yeah. know, because it's not, it's not where it used to be. It's where we've moved past Dario Gento and Romero and all this lot. Their generation is, you know, they're passing us. We have a new generation of people coming. And what are they going to do to terrify us, you know? And that's what's really excites me. And I really, you know, I'm interested to meet new filmmakers and, and hear what them. That's why I'm fascinated by your show, because it's so important to me to see what, what's coming out, what, what's next, who's, who's coming next, what's going to scare me. You know, and it's 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 wonderful for me, and it's it's so so fantastic that uh, that you do these kind of programs, and and that you have a loyal fan base that that keeps supporting you and and the genre. Yeah, and it's very exciting for me. I get very excited. Yeah, as you can see that is it. Well, what you just said now is precisely why I do this at all. Um, this show is based on uh, talking with people from all walks of life who are just contributing in some way to the horror genre. Who are out there and making stuff? They're they're acting or they're writing or they're directing or um, they're doing music and sound and anything and everything. 
but uh, they are exciting people and and pretty much on the whole they're independent you know i don't i don't really strive to bring on huge names you know i, I don't, i'm not looking to to go and get uh, you know like uh, you know Guillermo del Toro or somebody you know to come talk with me you know they wouldn't even consider doing that I'm sure but I, I I'm, that's not where I want to go really I, I want to find uh, the new upcoming talent I want to figure out where horror is going you know and again um, going from country to country here I love seeing what's happening especially in Ireland right now uh, it's so exciting um, there's so much going for you as far as uh, you know a culture what you've experienced as a society um, and uh, what you have uh, just around you as far as uh, history scenery architecture um, just uh, it's so exciting and seeing now where horror is um, in your neck of the woods and what you're doing with it it's just so exciting and that is the reward that I get for this you know and, and uh, there's a, a ton of work that goes into this pretty much every day um, there, there's a lot of work that I put into the show and uh, it is all more than worth it whenever I find something like this you know whenever out there uh, I, I find something of this caliber something that uh, is just so good and really is uh, challenging the way that I'm, I'm thinking about horror and I'm digging into different and uh, uh, different influences, different ways of doing things and analyzing things and then and, and getting to talk with people like you um, and figuring out where you're coming from and, and uh, why it is that uh, you are the filmmaker that you are now and you put together such a fantastic film. Right there, that's the reward. I mean, this right here is, is why I do it. And um, I just hope that people, uh, you know, just get a, a taste of of that, um, the enjoyment that I get and uh, the reward that I get, and I hope to be rewarding the listeners um, with that. And so that's that's what it's all about. So thank you, thank you. Well, it's uh, it's a pleasure, my friend. And uh, to all your listeners, I mean, I really hope that uh, that they continue to listen, and I hope that uh, they might even go and buy tickets to see my movie when it comes out. And uh, and know that uh, that uh, Ireland uh, Ireland's coming back with horror because you know we invented Dracula, oh, and uh, we're coming up with new stuff all the time. And there's a lot of talent here, and uh, you know a lot of people don't have money anymore. You know recession has hit Ireland really badly, and but that's not all bad. You see when there's when there's massive massive unemployment, massive trouble, and everybody's depressed, that's when the purest art comes out. Yes, because all these great art revolutions they come out of, of hard times and uh, I think Ireland is gonna be the place that comes out the next enjoyable uh, horror horror revolution anyway so I'd love to see some more of that coming out and certainly cross the seas to your listeners because uh, there's some really interesting stuff happening here so I mean you know we're wanting to be on the map listen to us yeah absolutely absolutely well you're, you're sure making a name for yourself and your great country and it's uh Man, it has been so wonderful uh, meeting you, talking with you, and, and just finding out uh, you know, more about what you do, why you do it, and, and really getting deep on some of this stuff here, man, because I could, I could just keep you the whole rest of the day here. I could go on for hours about... Uh, Ooh, what time you know. is it there, actually? Um, it's actually 3.30, and I, I, I probably should... The afternoon? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Like it's, it's pitch black here. Oh, yeah. It looks like a, the night of the living dead. Oh. <laughs> I'm covered in... Nice. There's nothing that's pitch black outside. Wow. That's why I want to come to that country. I just I have to experience that kind of yeah. thing. You know, you, you're, you've got to experience uh, darkness at four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, wow. Wow. <laughs> you no, know, it's it's a wonderful place, and seriously, it's uh, 
it's it's a, such a good place to do scary movies. Mine. Mm. Oh, I, I envy I envy that so much. It's uh, we're we're very lucky. I gotta say. Uh, well, man, it is like I said, been but fantastic. It has been an honor, Corey, to be on your show. Thank you. And I want you to to feel that anytime you can come back and uh, let me know what you think or show me some some stuff because I mean I'm fascinated to see what's happening on your end as well. You know. I will. And uh, if uh, if you ever want me back. I'm only a phone call away. Oh, I would be honored, honored to bring you on because, again, there's just so much I, that we could talk about horror-wise and then different movies, different filmmakers, different philosophies. I mean, even getting into, and you, you sort of touched on it a little bit, but even going outside of film and uh, other influences, uh, creative influences and endeavors that you get into, um, you know, things like music and, and writing and things like that, other ways of uh you know expressing these these kind of creative tendencies that you have um which i, I think that's tremendously important and uh, a really interesting subject so i mean there's a lot that uh we could talk about and i i would it, it would be a huge honor and uh I'm, I'm gonna take you up on that for sure hopefully this will be one of many my friend amazing amazing well randall and i will keep you informed of everything we're doing out here yes out yes i hope so um and of course uh i'm gonna put all the links up where people can go and and uh find out about you on facebook and uh any um related links here um, as far as websites and things uh, of course I'll uh, hook up your IMDB which has a lot of really inf uh, interesting information about you and uh, about the films that you've done and um, so yeah people are going to be able to, to find out a lot more and of course the trailer for this is uh, available on uh, Vimeo right now so uh, I'll be posting that up where uh, people can take a look at that and really get a taste for for what they're going to see uh, once uh, hopefully they get to a festival or um, in a place where they can really enjoy this film because I, I i'm gonna guarantee you you're gonna enjoy out there so awesome awesome well randall right. oh. but Thanks. listen Corey, i'm gonna leave you there all right Not that i don't want to speak to you all night because i right. think we could talk about horror in the 80s 70s <laughs> 60s and even in the 50s and we'd be we'd be enjoying ourselves absolutely but uh, i can see that uh, must be coming to the end of the show yes sir and, uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to say once again thank you so much. It was an honor, and I really really hope that your your viewers will enjoy listening to this. And uh, I I very much enjoyed being on your show and talking to you and letting me speak to you. Absolutely, anytime, Randall. Let's do this again. So, okay. Absolutely. Bye, Corey. From the electric chair. Herbert West, Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft. Part 1. From the Dark. Of Herbert West, who was my friend in college and in afterlife, I can speak only with extreme terror. This terror is not due altogether to the sinister manner of his recent disappearance, but was engendered by the whole nature of his life work, and first gained its acute form more than seventeen years ago, when we were in the third year of our course at the Miskatonic University Medical School in Arkham. While he was with me, the wonder and diabolism of his experiments fascinated me utterly, and I was his closest companion. Now that he is gone and the spell is broken, the actual fear is greater. Memories and possibilities are ever more hideous than realities. The first horrible incident of our acquaintance was the greatest shock I ever experienced, and it is only with reluctance that I repeat it. 
As I have said, it happened when we were in the medical school, where West had already made himself notorious through his wild theories on the nature of death and the possibility of overcoming it artificially. His views, which were widely ridiculed by the faculty and his fellow students, hinged on the essentially mechanistic nature of life and concerned means for operating the organic machinery of mankind by calculated chemical action after the failure of natural processes. In his experiments with various animating solutions, he had killed and treated immense numbers of rabbits, guinea pigs, cats, dogs, and monkeys till he had become the prime nuisance of the college. Several times he had actually obtained signs of life in the animals supposedly dead, in many cases violent signs, but he soon saw that the perfection of this process, if indeed possible, would necessarily involve a lifetime of research. It likewise became clear that, since the same solution never worked alike on different organic species, he would require human subjects for further and more specialized progress. It was here that he first came into conflict with the college authorities and was debarred from future experiments by no less a dignitary than the dean of the medical school himself, the learned and benevolent Dr. Alan Halsey, whose work in behalf of the stricken is recalled by every old resident of Arkham. I had always been exceptionally tolerant of West's pursuits, and we frequently discussed his theories, whose ramifications and corollaries were almost infinite. Holding with Heckel that all life is a chemical and physical process, and that the so-called soul is a myth, my friend believed that artificial reanimation of the dead can depend only on the condition of the tissues, and that unless actual decomposition has set in, a corpse fully equipped with organs may, with suitable measures, be set going again in the peculiar fashion known as life. That the psychic or intellectual life might be impaired by the slight deterioration of sensitive brain cells, which even a short period of death would be apt to cause, West fully realized. It had at first been his hope to find a reagent which would restore vitality before the actual advent of death, and only repeated failures on animals had shown him that the natural and artificial life motions were incompatible. He then sought extreme freshness in his specimens, injecting his solutions into the blood immediately after the extinction of life. It was this circumstance which made the professors so carelessly skeptical, for they felt that true death had not occurred in any case. They did not stop to view the matter closely and reasoningly. It was not long after the faculty had interdicted his work that West confided to me his resolution to get fresh human bodies in some manner and continue in secret the experiments he could no longer perform openly. To hear him discussing ways and means was rather ghastly, for at the college we had never procured anatomical specimens ourselves. Whenever the morgue proved inadequate, two local Negroes attended to this matter, and they were seldom questioned. West was then a small, slender, spectacled youth with delicate features, yellow hair, pale blue eyes, and a soft voice, and it was uncanny to hear him dwelling on the relative merits of Christchurch Cemetery and the Potter's Field. We finally decided on the Potter's Field, because practically every body in Christchurch was embalmed, a thing, of course, ruinous to West researches. I was by this time his active and enthralled assistant, and helped him make all his decisions, not only concerning the source of bodies, but concerning a suitable place for our loathsome work. It was I who thought of the deserted Chapman farmhouse beyond Meadow Hill, where we fitted up on the ground floor an operating room and a laboratory, each with dark curtains to conceal our midnight doings. The place was far from any road, and in sight of no other house, yet precautions were nonetheless necessary, 
since rumors of strange lights started by chance nocturnal roamers would soon bring disaster on our enterprise. It was agreed to call the whole thing a chemical laboratory if discovery should occur. Gradually, we equipped our sinister haunt of science with materials either purchased in Boston or quietly borrowed from the college, materials carefully made unrecognizable save to expert eyes, and provided spades and picks for the many burials we should have to make in the cellar. At the college, we used an incinerator, but the apparatus was too costly for our unauthorized laboratory. Bodies were always a nuisance. Even the small guinea pig bodies from the slight clandestine experiments in West Room at the boarding house. We followed the local death notices like ghouls, for our specimens demanded particular qualities. What we wanted were corpses interred soon after death and without artificial preservation, preferably free from malforming disease and certainly with all organs present. Accident victims were our best hope. Not for many weeks did we hear of anything suitable though we talked with morgue and hospital authorities, ostensibly in the college's interest, as often as we could without exciting suspicion. We found that the college had first choice in every case, so that it might be necessary to remain in Arkham during the summer, when only the limited summer school classes were held. In the end, though, luck favored us. For one day we heard of an almost ideal case in the potter's field. A brawny young workman drowned only the morning before in Summer's Pond and buried at the town's expense without delay or embalming. That afternoon we found the new grave and determined to begin work soon after midnight. It was a repulsive task that we undertook in the black small hours, even though we lacked at that time the special horror of graveyards which later experiences brought to us. We carried spades and oil-dark lanterns, for although electric torches were then manufactured, they were not as satisfactory as the tungsten contrivances of today. The process of unearthing was slow and sordid. It might have been gruesomely poetical if we had been artists instead of scientists, and we were glad when our spades struck wood. When the pine box was fully uncovered, Wes scrambled down and removed the lid, dragging out and propping up the contents. I reached down and hauled the contents out of the grave, and then both toiled hard to restore the spot to its former appearance. The affair made us rather nervous, especially the stiff form and vacant face of our first trophy, but we managed to remove all traces of our visit. When we had patted down the last shovelful of earth, we put the specimen in a canvas sack and set out for the old Chapman place beyond Meadow Hill. On an improvised dissecting table in the old farmhouse, by the light of a powerful acetylene lamp. The specimen was not very spectral-looking. It had been a sturdy and apparently unimaginative youth of wholesome plebeian type, large-framed, gray-eyed, and brown-haired, a sound animal without psychological subtleties and probably having vital processes of the simplest and healthiest sort. Now, with the eyes closed, it looked more asleep than dead, though the expert test of my friend soon left no doubt on that score. We had at last what West had always longed for, a real dead man of the ideal kind, ready for the solution as prepared according to the most careful calculations and theories for human use. The tension on our part became very great. We knew that there was scarcely a chance for anything like complete success and could not avoid hideous fears at possible grotesque results of partial animation. Especially were we apprehensive concerning the mind and impulses of the creature, since, in the space following death, some of the more delicate cerebral cells might well have suffered deterioration. I, myself, 
still held some curious notions about the traditional soul of man and felt an awe at the secrets that might be told by one returning from the dead. I wondered what sights this placid youth might have seen in inaccessible spheres and what he could relate if fully restored to life. But my wonder was not overwhelming, since for the most part I shared the materialism of my friend. He was calmer than I, as he forced a large quantity of his fluid into a vein of the body's arm, and immediately binding the incision securely. The waiting was gruesome, but West never faltered. Every now and then he applied his stethoscope to the specimen, and bore the negative results philosophically. After about three-quarters of an hour, without the least sign of life, he disappointedly pronounced the solution inadequate, but determined to make the most of this opportunity and try one change in the formula before disposing of his ghastly prize. We had that afternoon dug a grave in the cellar, and would have to fill it by dawn, for although we had fixed a lock on the house, we wished to shun even the remotest risk of a ghoulish discovery. Besides, the body would not be even approximately fresh the next night. So, taking the solitary acetylene lamp into the adjacent laboratory, we left our silent guest on the slab in the dark, and bent every energy to the mixing of a new solution, the weighing and measuring supervised by West with an almost fanatical care. The awful event was very sudden and wholly unexpected. I was pouring something from one test tube to another, and West was busy over the alcohol blast lamp, which had to answer for a Bunsen burner in this gasless edifice, when, from the pitch-black room we had left, there burst the most appalling and demonic succession of cries that either of us had ever heard. Not more unutterable could have been the chaos of hellish sound if the pit itself had opened to release the agony of the damned, for in one inconceivable cacophony was centered all the supernatural terror and unnatural despair of animate nature. Human it could not have been. It is not in man to make such sounds, and without a thought of our late employment or its possible discovery, both West and I leaped to the nearest window like stricken animals, overturning tubes, lamp, and retorts, and vaulting madly into the starred abyss of the rural night. I think we screamed ourselves as we stumbled frantically toward the town, though as we reached the outskirts we put on a semblance of restraint, just enough to seem like belated revelers staggering home from a debauch. We did not separate, but managed to get to West's room, where we whispered with the gas up until dawn. By then we had calmed ourselves a little, with rational theories and plans for investigation, so that we could sleep through the day, classes being disregarded. But that evening, two items in the paper, wholly unrelated, made it again impossible for us to sleep. The old deserted Chapman house had inexplicably burned to an amorphous heap of ashes. That we could understand because of the upset lamp. Also, an attempt had been made to disturb a new grave in the potter's field, as if by futile and spadeless clawing at the earth. That we could not understand, for we had patted down the mold very carefully. And for seventeen years after that, West would look frequently over his shoulder and complain of fancied footsteps behind him. Now he has disappeared. But his central nervous system is still intact. It might still prove to be useful. More useful than he'd be otherwise. Another fantastic show. I, I'm just so honored that uh, I'm just in the midst of such wonderful talent. Um, 
Man, I can't say enough. Thank you to everybody who has uh, been part of the show this week and has contributed to the show. And and uh, man, you know, first of all, thank you to Randall Plunkett. Uh, as you can tell, he is just so passionate about what he does. And believe me, the talent there is unreal. It's absolutely amazing. Um, Ireland is a very special place right now, um, not only in its historic beauty and its uh, history in general, but uh, and also the kind of social things going on that are producing some great horror. It's really interesting to study and to think about and to see the fruit of, as we are seeing in people like you know Randall Plunkett and of course Jason Figgis that I spoke with you know weeks ago. Man, just great stuff, and I can't wait to see what else comes out of not only these filmmakers but also other people um, in that area. So. Wow. But thank you. Of course, uh, there are going to be links up in the show notes where you can uh, find out more about Randall. But uh, man, I, I sincerely hope we can talk again because it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I hope that you picked up on that. Um, let's see. Also, of course, King Uke, thank you for being awesome, man. Thank you for uh, contributing your song, Helegram. Um, man, ukulele, the creative use of the ukulele, and of course, the Kingcaster is just awesome. I love it. I love it. And uh, thank you again for uh, being great. And, of course, check out Action Lab Comics, uh, actionlabcomics.com. Sean Gabarin, my friend. Um, man, and definitely if you can get a hold of uh, the one-shot snowed in from October of 2011, definitely pick it up. It's amazing. And there's a lot of other great stuff going on over there at Action Lab. So thank you. And, um, man, what else? What else? Of course, I'm leaving something out. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, next week, we're going to have uh, more great stuff. Of course, you're going to hear part two of Herbert West Reanimator. Hope you're enjoying that. But uh, man, we're just going to keep it rolling here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I sincerely appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk with you again next week. Have a great Thanksgiving, by the way. I'll, I'll talk with you again after Thanksgiving. Yeah.